Welcome back to Upstate Anecdotes, the Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities podcast. My name is Autumn Hines. We've learned about the donut model for social and planetary boundaries, and we've been thinking about ways to become more compliant with this model. What are some of the ways of life we choose or don't choose, and how that choice has an effect on the bigger picture? This is the episode on personal choice. I thought about what kinds of personal choices I wanted to talk about, and I didn't have to look far. In my yard, 14 pygmy goats are roaming around. They're eating the poison ivy and the vines off the trees. My parents hired them from the company Pygmy Goat Folks, folks with an X, in Atlanta, where we live. They're in an electric fence enclosure. We're not grass lawn people. We moved into a house recently that had some grasses, but mostly clover and flowers with ivy taking over some of the trees. This is where we had a choice. We could have hired a landscaper who would have pulled up every inch of the lawn and planted grass. They would have consistently come to the house and mowed, weeded, and planted. We could have gotten a sprinkler system installed. What we did instead was hire a company that went through the yard to find native species to cultivate and reorganize. They put us in touch with the goat people. Goats have a talent for finding joy in what we humans see as an invasive nuisance. We have a lot to learn from goats. I talked to Dr. Jeffrey Habron from Furman's Department of Earth, Environmental, and Sustainability Science last week about the donut, and we talked about personal choice. In the donut, the ecological ceilings include chemical pollution, ocean acidification, land conversion, biodiversity loss, air pollution, and more. I would argue that an industry as large as landscaping would have an effect on these categories. One of my constant shortfalls as someone who wants to choose actions that are as sustainable as possible is that the choices companies make have a direct impact on my choices. Their transparency affects how I make my decisions. Dr. Habron and I got to talk about that. Here's a a box I keep handy. (laughs) This is clothing. Um, but basically they have labels on some things, more people are doing it. So this says, okay, I can tell you about our water use. I can tell us that there's no sweatshops or labor, no toxic pesticides. Um, but there's, it's fair trade certified. Um, but it doesn't tell me about the carbon emissions of the product. Um, there are other things I get something and it'll say, here are the carbon emissions of the product, but then they don't tell me about, is it sweatshop, is there child labor? So it becomes challenging for people to say, just tell me what to do. And you know, the answer is use the donut, but there's no donut label. And that's where kind of where Kate Rayworth is going now with um, their donut lab. But you can have fair trade that does the opposite, that it does the life cycle and looks at who made the product but again, doesn't necessarily pick in carbon emissions. Um, So it's really hard to have like, what's the perfect label for people to make choices. But I think there are labels on consumer products and just generic choices that we can say, if people were aware of what's in the donut and then could interpret it a little bit about, think about how things are made, where they come from, how does it impact air, land and water? um, And do I really need to know you know, what the limits are for aerosols or climate change. You don't need to know the specific numbers, but just generally thinking about, you know, the fewer fossil fuels that are burned, the better off we are. And in general, the less you use something, the better off we are. Um, So I think those are the choices of, do I need to buy all these products, but I can buy a whole bunch of products that are all certified green. 
well, again, the balances, they're all green, but you bought a whole bunch of stuff with a whole bunch of packaging. Do you, do, do I really need to do that? Um, so I think those are some less is more generally, but again, it's not automatic. Um, eat plants and not meat. Generally, I guess if that's all you wanted to walk away with, sure, do that. But like, that's not going to get us there if that was as simple as it is. It's really going to require fundamental change with how we do things more than the individual things or the collective things that we actually do. The concept of personal choice is turning out to be a deep dive of layered issues, and the donut is one of the best metrics for that. I wanted to talk to some people who work in sustainable landscaping to see what they thought about the process and the effects of that one choice. I sat down with Maggie and Scott from Pygmy Goat Folks to get their perspective on everything from sustainability to grass to the meaning of life. They were more comfortable meeting outside than on Zoom, so the audio is affected by that, but it made talking to them all the more enjoyable. I mean, it's really it's really fun to um, keep them like grazing new places or browsing new places. Like it's really fun to um, see what people are working with and what they're trying to wrangle when it comes to space and their environment. Um, and it's really nice to spend time with not humans. <laughs> So, yeah, I think as much as it is rewarding as a human experience to hang out with goats, um, it's more fun to see, like, what happens to the environment when, like, you get sunshine on a place that there's been ivy growing for how many years, and then you see more birds there because they can see things to eat off the ground, and you see bigger birds come because there's more little birds around, and... You see, I don't know, just critters, you get to be outside, and um, I don't know. I love that part of the part of the job is finding little animal trails and figuring out a good place to put a temporary fence and knowing that that's going to get taken away and it's not really going to be, like, I'm not trying to permanently change that place. I'm just trying to give something else a chance to live there that Ivy has been smothering. I think it's cool that um, I was doing like a slight bit of research about just like goat and sheep landscaping in general. Mm -hmm. Just their attraction to like ivy and poison ivy and all of those like non-native. I thought that that was pretty cool that they're just instantly attracted to the things that strangle the plants that we want to see flourish. We started talking about landscaping and all that goes into it. And one topic was pesticides. Later in the episode, we'll talk about what vermin string with pesticides. And I asked Scott from Pygmy Goat Folks to give his comment on pesticides in general. The only way anything ever becomes different, um, at least for our culture, it seems like, is if you do just do it differently. And I think that it's not unimaginable to think that um, the inherent beauty in a meadow um, is not equally as, if not, I would argue, more uh, enchanting, engaging, um, and, and all of the ways that you can develop your own ecological observations and, um, you know, projects. And, like, uh, I would imagine that every meadow is a place worthy of investigation and analysis by anyone who's interested in biology anything else, uh, any of the other sciences, or 
poetry for that matter you know like um, so uh, it is interesting that convention demands um, demands a certain uh, hemmed in quality you know like a, a very trimmed and neat quality <clears throat> and that the way that we maintain that is through cancer causing chemicals that have a direct lineage to the holocaust and the gas chambers <laughs> you know like perhaps our need our perceived need and our performed need to seem well kempt and within the boundaries of society have actually created a society in which much has been unsayable for a long time and all of those unsayable things are factors that are destroying our basic ecosystem our ethics, our ability to even consider our own violence in the world. I mean, it's crazy, you know? Like, so, I guess on one level, I, I just, just from a cultural perspective, I feel like um, there's something really problematic about um, our conventional ways of appearing to each other as individuals who need to be trimmed and hemmed in and look a very particular way. Um, or have a very particular affect, and and having our landscapes do that, I, that troubles me. Um, also, to add to like retouch on that, like you know, uh, chemicals designed for extermination um, that have been repackaged as plant extermination uh, or exterminators. Um, I think that using as little of that slash none of that, and I preferably none of that. Um, should not only be an aesthetic choice that we're willing to make, but is absolutely a fundamental moral choice that we must make um, so that this planet, in all of its vast complexity, can find a way to not have to shove us off. You know? Um, so, like, in the name of not having humans become extinct, and and I would say even more importantly, just like not destroying the the infinity of life that's living in the soil um, and and the and in the forest and everything else, um, that we need to change our way of doing things. I did some of my own research about the history of grass lawns. I always find that any simple topic usually has a long, twisted background, and I was not disappointed. I read The American Obsession with Lawns from Scientific American by Crystal DaCosta. Grass is America's most abundant crop, but we can't eat it. Grass is great for a lot of things. It stops soil erosion. Some animals eat it. But it also does little for pollinators and leads to people watering their lawns in a drought. People douse their lawns in pesticides to get rid of weeds and spend thousands a year on maintaining them. There's nothing wrong with an open green space, but it made me wonder why we push for these perfect lawns so much. I talked to Laura Bain from Furman Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities. She and I talked about lawn care and pesticides and what she's doing in her own yard and how Furman is thinking about shifting their landscaping. We switched to bees, so now we have a couple of beehives on the solar farm uh, that are doing fantastic thus far. 
Um, we have one of our very own grounds managers, our ground superintendent, David Manning is managing those. And so he recently went out and split the hive because it was too big um, for the box. And so we have a second hive and hopefully we're gonna work toward some native pollinator plants out there as well. We have one patch outside the solar farm, um, but hopefully we can continue to kind of make that landscaping a little bit less turf and a little more diverse so that the bees have a little bit easier food sources. So that's the, the current state of the solar farm. We have slowly started to, to shift our lawn that we you know inherited when we bought our house to having more diverse plants that are native that can be good pollinators. But it's, it is hard because there's such a social norm around having a lawn that fits in with the neighborhood or especially like if you live with an HOA, Homeowners Association in your neighborhood, there are a lot of their rules around it. You can't have um, what, what would be considered messy looking. And I really think that's, we've actually struggled with that a little bit here. And that's one of the reasons that shifting away from a very manicured look to a more diverse, more, you know, supportive of biodiversity and pollinators, that look um, has been a slow shift because historically, especially the area around the lake has looked very neat and clipped and you can see the water from all sides and, but you know, that grass isn't keeping fertilizer from slowing down and rainwater from running off um, and it's all going into the lake. So you may notice if you're on Furman's campus, the north end of the lake up near where the Shy Institute is, that has been the main focus of the lake restoration plan. So the, the riparian buffers, the area right around the lake have been specifically allowed to grow up and native plants have been put there. Um, and so it's taken some time for people to get used to the idea and signage has been helpful. Um, but the biodiversity I think has been amazing. It's especially when the sunflowers start to bloom, we'll start to see lots more birds and the goldfinches and the butterflies. But the same thing happened at the solar farm. So we, we talked about putting wildflowers all around it. But then there's a season when wildflowers go dormant and then they look messy because they they just, they aren't blooming. So it's just a matter, I think, of either changing the social norm or allowing people to kind of understand the long-term goals and just having a, having a different aesthetic in mind, but it's hard. I mean, we started in our, personally in our own backyard um, because you, our backyard isn't visible <laughs> to the neighborhood. But while keeping some play space and some open space, we have started using our, our push mower to make different patterns in our backyard. So right now we have a spiral and it allows, you know, a place for the clover to bloom and the bee, we have tons of bees that come in um, while also giving us a place, you know, to run around and play and, and still be in the yard. And my daughter thinks it's the best because it looks like a maze 
you know? So we started by doing little things like that and putting more things around the edges and increasing the size of, of mulch beds. But I don't know. I mean, I think it all matters in the end. Um, and maybe it's the slow transition and, and showing people that it can be beautiful and it can certainly be less work. Uh, nobody likes, well, there are probably people who like to go out and cut the grass in the July heat, but I'm not one of those. So, you know, the less work we can put into it, especially when we're using lawn equipment that use gas, it's sort of a double whammy, right? Because we're now we're burning fossil fuels while we're also maintaining a lawn that's essentially doing no good um, biodiversity wise. And then especially if we're adding chemical inputs to it, like fertilizers. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how to best transition that away. I've seen some beautiful yards in our neighborhood that are mostly um, flowers and some native landscaping, but it, it can look overgrown at times. And, and I don't know, you know, it's just a matter of what you prefer. Yeah, we're dealing with the same thing. We're working with a company that comes and they pull the non-native plants and dry them out um, and then move native plants and put them in our yard. But we didn't start off with a grass yard and we're like transitioning from that. We moved yeah. to a house that's like had a very overgrown yard and now we're trying to make it healthier and it will then be also beautiful, hopefully. With the donut, with the biodiversity um, part of it, I think like that yes, anything you can do to make anything more biodiverse, it's like, then yes, you're positively affecting the donut, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's hard, I think it's hard to feel like, you know, your one yard, you know, in our case, like our quarter acre, does it make a difference? Yes. Is it a big difference? Probably not, but you know, I think just like any other choice that we make, um, they add up over time and it adds up, you know, as we, as the, as we begin to influence the social norms, you know, things don't change overnight usually. So I think it does matter just like using a reusable water bottle or, you know, all of the other things we talk about sustainability wise, you know, voting or, um, I mean, there's so many things personal choice wise that matter. And it, you know, if it matters to you, then isn't that, is that enough? Is that good enough? I think so. Anyway, how have your neighbors taken to your yard? Effort? Um, well, we haven't really talked to them about it, but we have neighbors on both sides that are like almost obsessive with their yards, like very much like clean edges, perfect um, length. And so I can't imagine that they like love it right off the bat, but they did love the goats. They thought that they were a great idea. Right. Um, but something that I found interesting in some of the research I was doing that translates also to my life is that I'm, um, we're selling my mom's house right now 
and we had sort of let the grass go a little bit and the realtor came over and said, you know, what are you doing for maintenance? And he looked around at the yards all around and said like, uh, one of the neighbors had some stuff in their yard, like a chicken coop and something else and said, oh no, like that's gonna really hurt, you know, your prospects. And then was like, you need to get someone out here mowing the lawn all the time um, because the lawn needs to be manicured essentially for you to sell the house. Yeah. And I was like, um, why? Like, I get, I get that everyone wants that, but that just seemed, there's no one living there. And obviously the next door neighbor with the chicken coop in their front yard doesn't care. So, but it's interesting. There's like a whole socioeconomic and like societal, I guess, just element to it. Cause you have to have the money to do it or yeah. the free time. Yeah. And then you have to fit in with everyone else because no one wants to move into a house that doesn't have a grass yard. Yeah, there's a lot of factors to it. It is really interesting. Like yeah. it's not that we're um, dismissing the yard and thinking like, oh, we don't care about it. It's like a level of care that's just has different priorities. Yeah, you have a different end goal in mind and it's not perfectly manicured green. Our yard, I would say, isn't even grass. It's like whatever green thing grows. And in the back, it's mostly clover, which is nice because clover actually doesn't get that tall. Um, so maybe clover is a good alternative for folks who are trying to, who want to transition, but need it to stay shorter. We were talking about Furman's landscaping and their pest management plan. And Laura started telling me about something that they're doing to reduce the amount of pesticides they're using. Well, I worked with them for a while on creating what's called an integrated pest management plan or IPM. And essentially what it does is it doesn't say you can't use pesticides or herbicides but there's a process for decision-making in place so that you only use them when you have to and you only use the amount that you really need, which most folks are doing anyway because it saves them money. But this one, you know, has it, we have it now have it in writing and so we can go through and make decisions based on, um, you know, what's the least toxic option, uh, so there's some different components to it, like monitoring the pest population to make sure um, that there's that it's at a level, high enough level that it's really doing damage. And what kind of damage is it doing? Is it just aesthetic damage? Is it really gonna kill the plant entirely? Is there an economic cost to it? Um, or is it a pest that could cause potential human issues? Um, thing, I guess more indoor things like pests that we might find indoors but you can then go and choose different ways to manage them so there's there's sort of a, a, a stepwise process starting with the least impactful and then sort of moving up so you can start with doing things like habitat modification so if it's a fungus for example that's invaded some sort of plant can you clear out just the infected branches uh, and then 
deal with it that way? Can you um, space the plants out further? Can you add in better drainage to so that it doesn't have as much ability to multiply the pest, depending on what it is? And then there are things um, like physical control of pests. So that's the next step where you would try to maybe trap the pest or um, create some some way that the pest uh, isn't is excluded from that area. Maybe it's netting or something. If it's like you know rabbits eating your roses, I don't know if rabbits eat roses. I just made that up. Um, and then the next step would be biological controls. So you're not you're still not using a pesticide or herbicide, but you're using potentially you know something like um, a different insect that likes to eat the pest insect. And then then you move to like the least toxic chemical control and and work up from there. So once you've tried these other methods, hopefully one of them works uh, sufficiently before you have to get to the pesticide. Um, but that's essentially what the pest management plan includes. And then the, the biggest change I think that we made for Furman was that we have good record keeping um, for how much you know pesticide or herbicide was applied but we weren't doing a very good job of tracking the effectiveness so we weren't going back and saying um, you know this this particular treatment worked in this way or it didn't work at all or we just didn't have a good way of saying well maybe we could use less of it and it still would have been effective so we just added a, a column on the end of the reporting sheet that allows our grounds crew to go back and say whether or not it was an effective treatment. And so hopefully over time, that will allow us to make better decisions on how to manage pests and use a little bit less toxic things as we go along. So over time, you know, working our way down that step ladder back down toward the, the least impactful methods. So I learned a ton going through this process and um, have been trying to apply some of that in my own house too, but I, I just want to make sure I give credit to Furman's grounds department and the amount of work that they do and the thought they put into managing our, our university with all the pressures and expectations that are on them to make our campus look the way that it does and to be able to do that in the least impactful way um, is a huge challenge so the, the more we can you know help support them in changing aesthetics expectations or adding signage um, to help educate like for example around the lake and the riparian buffers I, i'm I, th I feel like that's one of my biggest goals is like, how can I help support them in making the decisions that are best for the environment without them getting the, you know, getting the downfall from it? <laughs> I'll be the scapegoat, so to speak. <laughs> we ended our conversation talking about personal choice and what we think it means for us. We're both optimists, but we both are also realists. Here's what she had to say. Personal choice has been recently affecting the way corporations and governments yeah. do stuff. So it does make a difference, you know? Yeah. Our personal choices yeah. 
does make a difference. And I think you have to, you have to believe that it makes a difference. Otherwise, like, where's the hope, you know, like, that's how I kind of maintain motivation and hope is the, what I, the choices that I make and what I eat and how I maintain my home and my yard. I have to believe that it makes a difference. It, and I do believe that it does, but if I didn't, gosh, what a sad existence. <laughs> yeah, make, make the right choices just in case it does matter. There you go. There you go. Because what harm does it do? None. You know, does it give you some possible benefit? Yeah. So, you know, my favorite, so this is my favorite quote, and I think it fits in well. It's um, Maya Angelou, I believe. And she says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Like, why not? Why not give it a, give it a shot? And you, you know better, so, you know, do your best to do it. I think it's easy to start to feel defeated when thinking about sustainability at the personal level. You can recycle your plastic, but never at the rate corporations are dumping it into the ocean. You can eat vegan and purchase from locally sourced farmers markets, but your small contribution is overridden by one meat packing plant. You can plant wildflowers, but your neighbor is using pesticides. However, one of my favorite quotes is by Noam Chomsky a philosopher and a political activist. He said that optimism is a strategy for making a better future. Because unless you believe that the future can be better, it's unlikely you will step up and take responsibility for making it so. If you assume that there's no hope, you guarantee that there will be no hope. If you assume that there is an instinct for freedom, there are opportunities to change things, there's a chance you may contribute to making a better world. The choice is yours. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, I'll be talking to someone from Coca-Cola's sustainability department about corporate sustainability. Make sure to look for the Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities at Furman University on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.